Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I think another thing the Manosphere gets really correct is that women never think about what they bring to the table. They don't think about what they bring to the relationship. Right. They think that having a vagina is, is all you need. That's all I need. I have a vagina. What? I have boobs, right? And it's like, no, um, you need to think about, again, the second half of your life. What about when you're me and you're 42, okay? I, I'm not downing myself or anything, but it's like, I'm 42, okay? It's only downhill from here. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm going to get wrinkles. Uh, gravity's going to take hold. I'm never going to be 22 again. Mm -hmm. So what am I going to do with the second half of my life? Have an OnlyFans? Be hot? Get more plastic <laughs> surgery? It's, you know, so I, I did all the hard work on the front end. And now in the second half of my life, God willing, I'll have a whole bunch of grandkids. I'll have a church community that is a real family. I'll have this wonderful relationship with my husband because we've been through shit that we've been through stuff that nothing's going to break us now. Mm -hmm. Like if we got through all the things we got through, uh, there's nothing that's going to break us up now. And we're best friends and it's awesome. So don't listen to feminists. Don't be an e-thought. Don't have an <laughs> OnlyFans. Don't ride the, the cock carousel until you're 35 and then you're crying because no one wants to marry you. Um, get my book, read my book, and don't be a feminist. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty, physical, and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? I am. <laughs> all right. All right, everybody, this is In Liberty and Health, and today I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, she has covered a topic that interests me, actually, since I was probably in my early teens because I saw how um, the genders were treated in as far back as elementary school for me. So uh, anyways, Rachel Wilson, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. And like I said, I'm really looking forward to uh, talking with everybody. So um, I know I kind of gave a sloppy introduction of the, some of the topics that we may talk about today. But for uh, my listeners that are not familiar, uh, go ahead, give yourself a brief introduction and anything that uh, you feel I may have missed in that terrible sloppy introduction. <laughs> sure, no problem. I'm Rachel Wilson. Um, I'm an author and researcher. I have a book out called Occult Feminism, The Secret History of Women's Liberation. And I'm kind of known for being a shit stirrer on the internet and I debate a lot of feminists um, and talk about things like homeschooling and family and gender roles and and basically just how crazy the last hundred years have been since feminism became kind of the default um, dominant 
thing in society and how that is the biggest social revolution of all time. And most, most of us, if we're born after 1970, we don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. It's just taken for granted that, oh, of course, women's liberation was a good thing and it needed to happen. And, and we just accept it as a default. But a lot of people don't know the history behind it or who funded the movement or what the roots of it are or things like that. So I kind of, my work is a lot of like examining all of that and then what has been the outcome of that. So that's mainly what I talk about. Nice. Well, I really like the way that you kind of set that all up as the default. And I, I the reason why I like that so much is because a lot of people don't think of this as a default. And this is kind of what happens with a lot of different like political ideologies and, and ideologies such as feminism, where um, it really seeps into the culture and the way that we talk about things that people don't, mm-hmm. that is kind of just taken as gr- or for granted that now we look at a lot of things through this feminine prairie or feminine primary mindset. Yeah. And, um, you know, typically now we do like i said we take a lot of these things for granted and that a lot of people may not think that we're starting from that set point in almost every single interaction that we have and the way that we look at society as a whole yeah absolutely that's that's exactly what how i would phrase it and i kind of like i'll tell people when you're starting to think about this you have to think about you were raised in this environment, right? Like I said, unless you're much older, I'm going to be interviewing my 97-year-old grandma for my oh, YouTube Lord. channel soon. <laughs> I know. So that she has a completely different starting point than you and I do, right? right. Um, I think you're a little bit younger than me, but I'm 42. So from 1980 onward, feminism was the dominant thing in the culture. We already had working moms. We already had abortion rights. We already had go girl stuff, right? Like in the eighties, when I was growing up, it was Wonder Woman and She-Ra and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of all the women's empowerment stuff was already huge and it was everywhere. And by that point, it had just kind of become the fabric of everybody's everyday life. And so if you were raised with that and you never knew anything before that, you would think, Well, of course, this is, it's kind of like what a lot of the really hard left-wingers do, where they just want you to grant a whole presupposed worldview that we all agree on, right? They just want you to start from there with them. That's kind of how feminism is. Everybody just kind of starts with the assumption that it was a good and necessary thing, right? Mm -hmm. That prior to women's lib, all women were oppressed. They were slaves. They didn't have any rights. And so I take some time in my book to debunk some of that to start with. And then this idea that, that it was a grassroots thing. One thing I've learned in years of researching social movements is that they're almost never just grassroots from the ground up. There's almost always certain entities and money and things like that, that come in to push and support and promote these things culturally with an agenda. And that's certainly the case with feminism. So just like to start, To kick it off, a lot of people don't know that prior to women getting the vote in 1919, there was far more membership and participation in anti-suffrage groups than there were in pro-suffrage groups. So most women did not want the vote, which is shocking for a lot of people to hear. According to all the polling data and stuff we have from that time, it seems to be somewhere between four to six percent of women who actually had any interest at all in voting or being equal with men as far as participa- participation in civil life. And they yeah. they were very good about articulating their reasoning for that. And it's a lot of stuff I agree with. So 
I talk about that a lot too. And, and people are usually really shocked to hear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the one person who's responsible for making sure that women got the vote, wasn't it a Senator who actually received the call from his mother at the time that ensured that women would get the vote. Do I have that correct? Um, I think you might be talking about like the Hearst family at the time was mm-hmm. like Patty Hearst was a big funder and her, I think, she had her son who was a newspaper magnate and i don't remember if he was in congress but very powerful influential guy she was certainly a big part of it but the primary funder for the entire suffrage movement in america at least was alva vanderbilt belmont so -hmm. she was the one of the wealthiest women in the world at that time she was one of the first women to get divorced repeatedly so she married uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt's grandson like the magnate of the railroad industry and um divorced him married uh his best friend uh Oliver Hazard Perry Belmont who was like a Rothschild banking dynasty family um and then he died so she got like a huge divorce settlement and then a huge windfall from her second husband's death and ended up being one of the most wealthy women in the world and gave all that money to the suffrage movement. It was basically without her, it may not have happened for a much longer period of time. Some other Gilded Age, you know, uh, rich person probably would have funded it because they were all kind of on the same page as to why they wanted it. And the reasons they wanted it was because this was, you know, the industrial age where we needed tons of factory workers. And we needed to get people into the cities and working in these factories, and we needed cheap labor. At least if you were one of these wealthy factory owners, that's what you wanted. So they thought, great, we could get women in there. This is automated stuff. We can use women as labor now. Um, So let's galvanize them to get out of the home and into the factories. And um, the other reason was because they wanted a much larger tax base. Now, in 1913, they had just passed uh, the Federal Reserve Act, which I, I bet your audience has some feelings about that, as do yeah. I. Um, and the some of the people who were in that club, the Jekyll Island Club that snuck that thing through the Federal Reserve Act, snuck it in under everyone's nose, they were also totally on board and helped fund this. Mm-hmm. So it was really like the wealthy elite who wanted women to work in factories, earn wages, and tax them. So it gives them lots of cheap labor it gives them much more a much much bigger tax base and it had this other benefit of if all the women are working well we got to put the kids somewhere so we can put them in public schools where we can indoctrinate (laughs) them with the ideologies that we want and things of that nature so yeah at the time even if you look at like voting participation for the first decade or so after women got the vote they didn't really care about it and they didn't want to vote And some of the reasons they talked about for why that was is, number one, they could foresee that this was going to cause some strife in family life because Mm -hmm. they knew, okay, men are going to look at things like economics and taxes and uh, freedom and liberty and and things like that, you know, and and women are going to pay attention to stuff like security and safety and Mm -hmm. welfare, safety nets, and because they knew back then, before everybody had had a century of propaganda stuffed down their throat, that women are more like people safety oriented and men are more like thing. They like things. They like building stuff and and technological progress and things of that nature, right? So they knew it might cause some strife in the family because you might have two people in the family voting against each other's interests. 
which is seemed like not a good thing to them at that time. <laughs> uh, the other thing was they could foresee that they may have to be drafted. They said, well, if we're full civil participants and we're voting on how the nation is run, we might be expected to defend it. And we don't feel that that's our place. And we don't think we even can do that because especially a hundred years ago, war wasn't as technologically advanced. We're talking World War II trench era fighting and women are going, we can't do that. We don't want to do that. Um, so they, yeah, they had some really sound ideas for why that was. And they, the other big reason was they were like, we're too busy. We have children we're raising. We have uh, church stuff that we're always organizing and putting together. We're taking care of the elderly. We're taking care of the sick. Um, you know, we're, we're raising children and public school wasn't yet mandatory everywhere. In some states like Massachusetts, it already was, but it wasn't everywhere. So there were still a lot of women teaching their kids, raising their kids. It was considered a full-time job at that time, which I think was a good thing. So um, they just really weren't interested in it. But nobody knows that because what you're taught in public school and what everyone hears is like, oh, women marched in the streets and they demanded and they fought until they got the vote because they wanted it and, and they wanted to be liberated from the oppressive patriarchy. And that's really not the story at all. And this is all very well historically documented. But you never hear that because when they invented gender studies in the 70s, uh, they created something called standpoint feminism, which means we're going to rewrite the history from the perspective of the oppressed, which, according to them, is women, oppressed women. So they, they literally rewrote history. So the reason I wrote my book is to try to set that straight. And uh, it's really well cited and sourced and documented. I'm not just making it up. It's not just my opinion, right? So I just wanted to kind of beat back against that idea because I see a lot of problems with the outcomes of women's liberation over the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, st that stuff is my opinion, but I use a lot of data <laughs> to back it up. So. Well, no, no, as, as you should. And um, I, I do get a little nutty when I see people just saying, oh, you shouldn't have to source anything. Some things you just know are true. Well, it helps to have evidence and data to support your argument and to why you come to your conclusions. So um, the one thing that I think a lot of people also don't know about, and perhaps you could enlighten all of us and myself as well on this, is that um, the original feminists were more of they based their ideology around female supremacy, if I understand this correctly, and there were lots of firebombings, and they had ambitions of like different political assassinations. Um, could you detail some of the history surrounding that and maybe some major events? Because I just know that little tidbit, but I don't know any specifics. So um, yeah. if you could go ahead. Yeah, yeah as, there was some of that in the United States, for sure. Mm -hmm. England seemed to be much worse. Um, okay. Like the, Pankhurst, the Pankhurst family women were... Uh, basically ter terrorists. I don't know if I can say that on here, but terrorists, you know, <laughs> uh, they did things like fire bombings, uh, smashing out storefront windows. Um, they would do hunger strikes. They would chain themselves to things. They would kind of like the environmental activists, feel like really crazy people that we have today. Mm -hmm. um, but that was like a super tiny group. It was a very right. small, specific group of women um, and in general, like the rest of the female population kind of saw them as crazy radicals and didn't want anything to do with them and, and really found them to be like, that kind of thing was like, oh, impolite to even talk about 
you know, it was just like, oh, it was uh, very considered very radical and really crazy at the time. Um, and that wasn't like really even what pushed women's like voting rights through suffrage didn't really come from that because what they would do is they'd just throw them in jail for like a few weeks and then they'd let them out and be like please stop firebombing things like they were the authorities were actually uh pretty tolerant of it i mean i know that feminists <laughs> now would disagree with me and they'd be like no all cops are bastards and they should have just you know like knelt before them and worshiped them instead but really i mean if men had done those things at the time they would have been hanged most likely. So the worst that the women got was like a little bit of jail time and in jail. Yes, sometimes they tried to force feed them, but that was because they didn't want a bunch of women like dying in jail on their hands. That would have been a disaster and that would have been a human rights violation. So they would sometimes force feed them. Oftentimes they'd just let them out. Even though there were criminals who had been convicted of crimes, uh, they didn't want the nightmare of the public, you know, relations nightmare on their hands so a lot of times they would just let them go and as soon as they got out they would just continue to do those kinds of activities but um some of the most influential feminists that everyone knows about like susan b anthony elizabeth Cady stanton matilda joslyn gage some of these women that we've heard about they actually came at this from a very different angle. Um, they didn't see it as much political as they did a religious thing. So Elizabeth mm -hmm. Cady Stanton and 38 other women rewrote the Old Testament of the Bible, the first five books of the Torah. They rewrote it <clears throat> from a woman's perspective, meaning they took out anything that they didn't like. And this was kind of a trend at the time you saw with like the Schofield Bible and the Jeffersonian Bible where um, Protestants were taking a lot of liberties with, uh, well, if I can interpret the Bible myself, if sola scriptura is true, then I can kind of take out the parts I don't like, or I can reinterpret things. So they took out any patriarchal language they didn't like, things like God the Father. They kind of removed the part where Eve was the first person to eat the fruit, uh, things like that. They took a bunch of things out and changed a bunch of things to try to make it more egalitarian. And in the foreword to the Women's Bible, which you can go buy right now on Amazon.com still to this day, even though it's a 130-year-old book, it's still in print. Uh, in the foreword, Elizabeth Cady Stanton actually says that the only thing standing between uh, America and women's liberation is Christianity because it's a patriarchal religion. And so we either have to reinvent it to the point that it is unrecognizable, wipe it out or wipe it out completely. Those are the options. And she said, since the Bible is one of the most influential books in the world, one of the most popular books in the world, um, it's probably not going to go away. We probably can't get rid of it. So we're just going to change it. We're just going to rewrite it how we think it should have been written, right? Um, which is completely blasphemous. If you are someone who's Christian, you should not be cool with that. Uh, but that's what they did. And on the staff of people who did this book, there were 38 women, they were mostly practicing occultists, spirit mediums, some were staunch atheists, some of them were like agnostic hum humanitarian types, um, some were theosophists, some were like really radical Quakers and things like that. So basically a bunch of non-Christian, at least not, certainly not mainline Christian women got together and rewrote the Bible and made it into the women's Bible. So 
one thing I came across when I started writing this book, I thought it was going to be mostly about funding and politics, but I kept reading, you know, all the bios of these women and reading their own writings. And I was like, most of them are into the occult. Most of them are, you know, they do tarot card readings, they do fortune telling, they do spirit medium stuff, or what was really popular at this time in America was trance speaking, where you would publicly say that you were being possessed and then convey messages from the spirit world, things like that. So I was like, okay, I didn't know that. And if I didn't know that, I'm guessing a lot of other people don't know that. And it seems kind of important. And so, yes, going all the way back to ancient times, all the way till now, there's always been a common thread of occult religion, witchcraft, things of this nature in feminist movements. And it has to do with, like you said, female supremacy, goddess worship, things like that. So another big myth about feminism is that it's about equality. <laughs> it is not about equality. It has never been about equality. I know every feminist will tell you that. I know they'll say that. But we can go to the writings of the most influential feminists of the last 250 years, and they they straight up tell you it's not. They you know publicly they pay lip service to that, and then in their writings they say, "Look, we just we have to not only smash the patriarchy, but in order to keep it down, we have to completely um, you know subjugate men to our will." And that's what we have to do. And that's what we should do. Um, so it was never about that. There's just so many um, mis misunderstandings and misconceptions that people have about feminism in general. And it's now in modern times seen as this like, oh, it's just about women having freedom and choices. I just debated a young lady last night who was like, I don't see what's wrong with women having choices. Like, why can't they just like have freedom and stuff? You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I just think I should be able to like do what I want, you know? Um, bless her heart. <laughs> but, but that's not what it was. And on top of that, all the things feminism promised to do, it didn't do those things at all. So like feminism was supposed to be about protecting women, right? Like, oh, what do we do about abusive husbands? Uh, what do we do about bad marriages? And what do we do about domestic violence and, and you know, all the things that people see as the oppressive patriarchy? Uh, so it was supposed to be about protecting women, giving them more choices in life. And I think if you look at the outcomes over the last hundred years, not only did none of that happen, but you could make a really good case that it's worse. So I, I could get into some of that too, unless you want to take it a different direction. No, no, no. There's, there's a whole lot of good stuff there. Um, the one interesting thing is that I, I think the other thing that feminism has brought about is this, I, I've, I've kicked the hornet's nest a few times and made a few people upset when I go after um, the step-parent situation and how normalized this is in our society. But yes. I think this is largely because um, we've told women that you don't need a man and that um, you know, men, even by today's standards, are basically superfluous. I'm sorry, that, that's a little bit of a tricky word. But uh, men are super, superfluous to, or, uh, for women now, where women basically don't need men for the large part. So, um, you know, when women are younger, as I'm sure, as I've heard you lay out before, when they're their most attractive, they realize that all this attention is awesome, right? And, and this mm -hmm. is how men interpret porn right because our natural instincts are women want a lot of attention because it's interpreted as resources and then men want unlimited sexual access at all times right mm -hmm. so as women get lots of attention at a younger age they don't realize like hey this is my gift so i need to use this sparingly right, right. It, and 
so now women will go around and be pro- or promiscuous and then they'll have a child with somebody and they don't realize that that sexual value that they once had is no longer what it once was right mm-hmm. and a lot of this kind of ties into like responsibility and i think that largely society we kind of treat women like retarded children right <laughs> we tell them they have no agency and that they can do no wrong and you go girl and any guy who's going to come along you know you're going to find your guy no matter what right or um yeah. I forget what the one feminist said, but she said you should date all the bad boys or all the boys, right? The bad boys, the good boys, all these guys. And then, you know, you'll find the one that you can settle for. Nothing will be more attractive to you. All these tropes that kind of, once again, are implanted in our brains because of this feminine primary worldview that we have. So I know I threw a lot at you there, but um, if you have any. No, I I totally followed. Mm -hmm. So yes, um, that's something I talk about all the time is the sexual power dynamic thing between men and women Mm -hmm. so my argument that i always make is that there was equality in power dynamics among men and women prior to feminism and that feminism actually came along and threw that power dynamic off completely and what i mean by that is prior to women's lib women had um primarily all the control over who gets to procreate, who gets to pass along their genetics, who gets to be married and have families um, and have babies. We're like the gatekeepers of sex, right? Um, And it it was like that throughout all of history because it wasn't like, um, you know, people would be like, well, what about arranged marriages? And it's like, yeah, but you're, if you're under the impression that every man got a got a arranged marriage you would be wrong so like genetically if you take a look at it um there's a a geneticist who did a giant study on this and found that all of us alive today have twice as many female ancestors as we have male ancestors and what that means is that historically about 80 percent of women who lived to maturity got the chance to pass along their genes and have children and only about 40 percent of the men historically ever got a chance to do that so right there 60 percent of men aren't going to leave a legacy aren't going to leave a footprint genetically on humanity at all they're just going to be born they're going to die and that's going to be it whereas as a woman all you had to do was like basically be fertile and you were going to have babies right you were going to and if you had babies the expectation was somebody should be providing for those babies and taking care of and protecting you um so that's a big thing like men might have had the monopoly on force on physical force they're bigger they're stronger always have been always will be that's true but we had a really important advantage which was we were valued for being mothers we were valued for being wives and we were seen as like a valuable thing and men had to prove themselves they had to provide something of value usually to get a wife you didn't just get a wife So when we gave women sexual liberation and political rights, and um, also women have all the financial power now, so we we can vote, we can be senators, we could be presidents, we can have high-ranking CEO women, and on top of that, now you have stuff like OnlyFans, you have um, girls- number one career choice in 2020. (sighs) Girl, girl influencers, right? The Instagram girls that all they have to do is post sexy bikini photos. They get like a million followers and they're wealthy just from posting pictures of themselves to Instagram and nothing else, right? Um, so that threw off the power dynamic. 
men are at a great disadvantage. And you can see this in tons of areas of life. Probably the most obvious one would be a family court. So 70% of divorces are initiated by women now. Among college-educated couples, that number goes up to 90%. So oh. something to think about if you want to marry a girl with a college degree. She's probably going to bring an average of $36,000 of college debt with her. And she's going to be far and away more likely to divorce you than you are to divorce her. Okay. Yeah. Real quick on this point. Wow. That's, I actually didn't know that. That's, that's fascinating. So pretty nuts. You, you have to wonder if that's intentional because also as women begin to make more money, they also tend to divorce men more often. Yes. And because I think it's one of the things that precipitates divorce the most is women getting a raise because, you know, women want an equal partner, but that equal partner has to make 58% more than they do. <laughs> Right. That's exactly right. And it's so funny because, you know, my kids are raised in my home, which is very traditional and dare I say patriarchal, the P word. Um, and I have four daughters and the youngest are 14 and 11. And we were having a funny conversation this morning where they were talking about what boys they thought were cute, like all girls that age do. And the one that's 11 years old was like, uh, yeah, if I'm going to date a boy, he has to have abs and be like six foot two. <laughs> and then the 14 year old says, yeah, I like boys with blonde hair and, and blue eyes and they have to be at least six feet tall. And I was just like, these are my, my kids even saying this kind of stuff. Right. Right. But it shows you kind of the world that's been laid out for them and the yeah. expectations. And, and it goes to both sides too, but you know, they or you know, the guys in the manosphere say that you should have the six, 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 right. Six feet tall, right. six pack abs and six and figure, figure income. income. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, let's just be honest for a second for men. It's like, is she kind of attractive and not horrible to me? Okay, probably good enough. I'll go for it, right? Guys right. don't guys don't usually have like in general these super high expectations whereas women, we have data on this. How uh how well men who are under 5 foot 10 do in the dating arena, it's not good. Right, men right. who are bald, not good. Men who make, you know, less than 70k a year, not looking good for them, right? Like women even and this is something that the internet has kind of caused whereas like if we're talking about that is she a one to ten on the scale kind of a thing girls who are fours are entitled as though they are tens now girls mm -hmm. who bring nothing to the table who have like you know like when you're talking about what men would want girls who are overweight uh have no skills have no interest in, in interest in mothering or homemaking or being a wife and on top of that, um, they usually have a really high body count. They bring a bunch of emotional baggage and they bring a mm -hmm. bunch of financial debt. Right. And these girls think that they deserve like a nine or a 10 guy. And <laughs> right. they really do. Like if you've seen like some of those viral videos where they do like man on the street, just asking girls what they think, they will say that it's kind of mind blowing. And men, men don't think that. And the reason why is because as a boy, when you're growing up, and you're going through your adolescent phase of life and you're a teenager, you quickly realize the world doesn't give a shit about you. And you had better bring value of some kind for people to care. Like people right. are going to judge you based on the value you bring in some aspect in life. Mm -hmm. For girls, it's not that way. Because you go from being a young girl to being a teenager. And as soon as you hit your post-pubescent years, 
the world looks at you based on your fertility. Like I said, you don't even have to be super attractive. You just have to be like acceptably attractive and fertile because you're young mm -hmm. and people treat you differently. And so they never know anything else. And they're under this assumption that that's going to last forever, that this is just what life is. Right. Um, and if you're hot, it's worse. That's why I think there's this thing called the hot crazy matrix where it's like <laughs> the hotter a chick is, the, the crazier, crazier she is. Mm -hmm. And it's because that kind of power does kind of make people crazy. So if you are a really gorgeous, like knockout girl with like all the curves and everything, you're going to be treated from the time you're developing your personality as a human mm -hmm. into your 20s, through your 20s, you're going to be treated like you are made of gold and you're going to think that you have this crazy intrinsic value, right? Because everyone like will open doors for you, buy things for you, offer you the world. You can have a boyfriend that will take you across the planet on fancy vacations. And, you know, the world just throws itself at these women's feet. They can have anything they want if they're really attractive. And then what happens is they think that'll last forever and since they have so many options, they usually don't get married. They play the field. They go from one guy to the next. And then they hit a certain age. They hit what we call the wall, right? <laughs> right. I don't know if any of you guys have seen. Um, there's a guy that had a YouTube channel, Better Bachelor. And he had this viral video of a woman who was right around this age. She was like 36 or something. Very, very attractive woman. And she is the exact lady I was just talking about, had always been good looking, always had a ton of options, always had a lot of money coming her way, resources coming her way based on her attractiveness. She never wanted to settle down. She turned down a bunch of marriage proposals. And as she was getting into her mid thirties, suddenly she wasn't getting the attention she was used to. The caliber of guy she was interested in was no longer interested in her. A lot of much older men were now asking her out. And she's like, I don't, why do these 50 year old guys like want me? I don't get it. I want somebody who's young and, and fun and all these things. And it was a video of her literally in tears crying the whole time because she did not understand this. She was like, I don't know what's happening. And, and my friends are all married and they don't want to go out anymore because they have kids. And she was just like having this crazy midlife crisis. And it's very easy to see those women and like dunk on them and be like, yeah, that's what you get. Um, but they just don't know any better. And right. we don't, we don't culturally explain this to young women. Like right. my grandma would have, right. My 97 year old grandma, when she was young, her mother and grandmother would have said to her, you know, you should probably find the best guy you can when you're young and mm -hmm. get married. They would have never told her to wait till she's 36. It would have been like, yeah, if you want to get married and have a family, you should do it when you're 19, 20, 21, 22, somewhere in there. When you have the most options and you're young and starting a family makes sense. And so those girls kind of implicitly understood, oh, this doesn't last forever. This is a, a short period in my life that I have this magical power that I sit on, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have this magic thing I'm sitting on that makes everybody want to do nice things for me, but that's not going to last forever. Today's girls don't think that. And part of it is because you see like Jennifer Lopez and Madonna and, you know, these women in their 50s and 60s trying to be young and sexy forever and trying to extend this sexuality like into old age, like far past menopause. And they think it's like, well, if I just get enough plastic surgery and I look good, 
it, it'll stay the same. And it's like, no, because you could be the hottest 55 year old ever, right? JLo still looks great. Yeah. She's in her 50s. She still looks great. But if you put her next to a 22 year old who's hot, well, there's just no, for men, there's no contest because one can give them offspring, the other can't. And that still matters. Mm-hmm. But, but young women don't understand that now. So they turn 18, they start an OnlyFans, they start an Instagram. They figure out they can make a lot of money and get a lot of attention from their sexuality. Mm-hmm. And then they have no plan at all for what they're going to do when that phase of life is over. Yeah. Yeah. So um, w- one thing I wanted to get into it with you a little bit about, um, the manosphere is a very, very interesting space. And I know we did a little bit of back and forth before we hopped on here. Um, I... I- try to tell people you got to take the good with the bad Mm -hmm. because there is a lot of good there in terms of helping men understand the dating market today because it's not like way back in the day and if you just strictly follow the trad line i feel like like if you just listen to jordan peterson and matt walsh you're going to be hung out to dry because you don't understand this power dynamic that you're speaking to because they never talk about that they tell you to just sack up take more responsibility because you're a man therefore that's your duty which they're not entirely wrong and that is noble to do but the problem is 100 responsibility with zero percent authority which is generally what we have in most um relationship situations is essentially slavery and that's what they're kind of signing men up for so this is why i think people should kind of listen to some of the manosphere guys now yes andrew tate um fresh and fit some of these other guys do say some really silly shit that i wouldn't get on board with but in terms of understanding body language or dating non-exclusively for a short period of time and just getting experience with women not necessarily saying that you should go out and you know bang all the 304s down in miami but but understanding social dynamics and at least improving your relationship with yourself and with women i think is a good thing and then helping that transfer over to perhaps a long-term relationship where you understand the dynamic there and can kind of use these cues to your advantage and once again this isn't to say you should be manipulative or anything like that but just kind of understanding the totality of your situation um where do you think the manosphere kind of goes wrong and what do you think they get right so i know i kind of threw a lot at you but um no, that's, I, I think you have a unique i love that question yeah i really love that question because i i kind of have two worlds that i have my little feet dipped in and one is my like orthodox christian very traditional spiritual philosoph- philosophical mm-hmm. friends that i do a lot of podcasts with but i also have friends in the manosphere like aaron clary shout out aaron clary my bud my pal Um, who's been super supportive of me and the work that I do. And we don't agree on everything, but he, you know, I think he gets a lot right and he thinks I get a lot right. So what I think they get right is, yes, I do think there needs to be someone who explains this to young men because otherwise they just get their face stomped, right? They enter the dating world and they get shellacked because I don't know if you guys know any of the statistics about dating apps, right? And how they're horrifying, (laughs) how bad it is for guys. Like you have got to be the top 1% in of men on a dating app to get anybody decent to even click on your profile. Whereas a woman, a woman can go on there. She can be like, I'm 22. I got three babies by three different baby daddies. Um, I got a bunch of debt. And sometimes you can even have one on the way. (laughs) Right. And I'm pregnant and I want a man who's going to take care of my kids and pay my bills and like can make insane demands and they will still get Mm 
tons of interest, right? Mm -hmm. This, that's really bad. And one of the good things about the manosphere is they're helping at least tap the brakes on that because that's really, really bad for men, but it's also really, really bad for women. Mm -hmm. It literally makes women insane. So to give them that much power, to give them this completely delusional view of the world and of life that, and I see this in girls all the time. When I debate girls younger than me, they're just like super, super entitled. They're like, I don't see why I can't just do what I want. I mean, I can just do what I want. What's the problem? Why do you care? You know, and they've got this horrible attitude. Uh, They don't take good care of themselves. They don't uh, really get their life in order very much. It's like Mm -hmm. they're, they're total disasters. And the narcissism and the like, the just the total delusion and detachment from reality, then they get older and and it goes completely off the rails. And this is another thing we can see in some of the stats. A full 25% of adult women in America are taking a prescription psychiatric drug. 25% of all American women are on a psychiatric prescription drug. That's nuts. Uh, another stat for you would be that by the year 2030, only seven years away, of all women of childbearing age are going to be single and childless. That could be, not even kidding, like a catastrophic civilization-ending event if that truly comes to pass and if we continue on that. We're already super well below replacement levels on the birth rate. Women are, uh, I think, 88% of women take birth control in their lifetime, hormonal birth control which we never tell them all the risks of it and that a lot of them may not be fertile if they take it for a certain amount of time. No, 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 it's fine. If you're breaking out, just take birth control. Don't worry, they, you'll be fine, yeah, right? they <laughs> totally just pass it out like candy. Yeah. Um, you're never really, it's like, oh, you shouldn't smoke because you could get a blood clot. But other than that, take all the hormones you want. Um, and it also, uh, birth control changes women's mate selection drastically because the birth control pill basically convinces you that you're already pregnant. So your body and your brain and your hormones think you are pregnant. Therefore, you're much more likely to pick like docile, submissive, gentle men, uh, rather than like the kind who can save you if there's like a home invasion or a disaster, right? The more like masculine high T men are not going to seem as appealing to you because you think you're already pregnant. So you want these like what we would kind of call beta type of males, right? Mm -hmm. The male feminist fedora hat wearing (laughs) gentlemen are the the ones that women end up with. But then, of course, at some point, that's no longer satisfying. The woman ends up getting a divorce. It's just everything has been thrown off. The entire natural order of how all these things work has been turned on its head and inverted in less than a century. It took from about 1920 to about 1970, so about 50 years. And by 1970, most women were heading into the workforce. Um, Abortion became legalized. Uh, birth rates dropped like a rock, uh, wages. I mean, the economic impact of almost doubling the workforce in a decade because we told all the women to go to work made it almost impossible for a single family income to work for anyone. That's right. why so many so many people say, well, I don't feel like I can stay home um, with my kids. So all the kids are raised in daycare. There's no like family bonding anymore. It's just the the people who wanted feminism wanted destruction of the family union. And that's, again, not my opinion. It's in their own writings. You can go, I'm working on my second book about the Bolsheviks and how they in, instituted feminism in Russia. Mm-hmm. 
same idea, just a different delivery system that would be more applicable to like the communist revolution that was going on there at the time. They wanted to get rid of the family because, and, and it's certainly like marriage and patriarchy because we need to get women into the workers, you know, workers of the world unite. We need all the women working. Uh, their loyalty and their efforts should go to the state and we can abolish private property and um, like people passing down property or having like intergenerational wealth if we just get rid of the patriarchy because everything's through the dad. If nobody knows who their father is, if none of the parents are married, nobody's getting an inheritance. Why would men work hard to accumulate resources, own land and pass it down to their offspring if they either don't have offspring or don't know who their offspring are? This yeah, was so that I'm sorry thing. to interrupt. It's really, really interesting that you, you yeah. kind of encircle that because a lot of this sounds familiar because you're hearing a lot of people talk about um, polygamy and mm -hmm. like it, it actually surprised me. And I talk to people about this shit all the time. I'm like, I, don't, I didn't know like how many people just in like that I know personally are into swinging like open marriage. Uh, yeah. Right. I thought that shit is the weirdest stuff in the world. My wife literally just came in and, uh, you know, kind of gave me a little nod real quick, but her, our, our basic premise of our relationship when we first met was, you know, if you cheat, we're done. <laughs> like right. that, that is a line you don't cross. Yep. But I mean, the reason why totalitarian regimes want this so bad is because it does distort, distort order so much. And this is why I think, um, and I know you're formerly or perhaps still kind of like of the libertarian mindset. Um, I can't get on board with this kind of free love idea of libertarianism where you don't have any responsibility and you don't have loyalty and it's kind of live and let live. And not to say that we should use government force or anything on these people, right. but there is this idea of social responsibility that you live up to a certain standard, right? Like if I got fat and lazy and gained you know, a hundred pounds, my wife would leave me immediately. But my duty is that I go to work, that I work out consistently, that I take care of the house and that I have all these duties placed upon me to keep me as a robust individual. And that I'm also loyal to her. And then yeah. once again, in turn, her responsibilities, once again, she's loyal to me and she does things around the house as well. You know, there's these mutual yeah. responsibilities that are expected of each other. But when you have this free love, you know, live and let live, do whatever you want. So long as you're not hurting another person, um, if you tolerate degeneracy for so long, um, I talked about this with uh, Pete Quinones, I really do feel like that grows the state and it does grow demand for the state because you have so much chaos within your community. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that's that's what they did in in like among the Bolsheviks. And it also happened here. So like one of the big free love proponents here was Victoria Woodhull. She was one of the first she was actually the first woman to technically run for president with um um. Frederick Douglass on the ticket. They didn't get anywhere, so you don't hear about it that much. But she was a free love advocate. And um, she went through like a big live and let live phase. She was like, and we're talking like mid to late 1800s, guys. So this is not recent, but she was a big into like sex workers' rights and destigmatizing prostitution and things like that. She also helped um, Cornelius Vanderbilt robbed the stock market of millions of dollars in the first Black Friday crash, um, which she said it was through her um, spirit mediumship, through her psychic capabilities that she tipped him off. That's not what it was. She had a ring of prostitutes. Um, there's even some evidence. I didn't go for this in my book because I couldn't find enough definitive evidence to prove it, but it kind of looked like she was a pimp. 
a little bit. Uh, like a female pimp at the time, she had a ring of prostitutes who would all sleep with these Wall Street guys at the time and basically do espionage work for her and give her insider trading info. So that's so she helped Cornelius Vanderbilt make a ton of money off of that crash. And then he, in turn, gave her a bunch more money to invest in opening the first women's stock market firm uh, on Wall Street and her own publishing company, where the very first thing she published was the Communist Manifesto was the first time it was broadly published in the United Whoa. States. Yeah. So you'll find a ton of overlap between Marxism, socialism, uh, veganism, and feminism all the way back to the 1700s. So oh, none of this stuff is new. It's always been kind of part and parcel of the same worldview, right? It really comes down to like paradigms and worldviews and how you see things, how you see human dynamics and things like that. So... Um, that's, that's why I love philosophy and getting into all that stuff. But all that aside, yeah, I think that the Manosphere is very good about trying to say, wait a minute, this is bullshit, right, for both sides. It's not good for men. It's also not good for women. And the bigger point would be it's terrible, terrible, terrible for children. When you said the step-parent dynamic, there's uh, not very reliable data on things like domestic violence because... We don't know how much of it goes unreported. Um, we don't have like a century of statistics on it that we can look back and see the trends. It's very unreliable. Sure. But what we do have good data on is childhood abuse situations. And that's because you have government entities that are in charge of that, right? Mm -hmm. Children, some of it may go unreported, sure. But a lot of times that kind of thing is found out because if kids are going to school or people notice if kids are being harmed or killed yeah. or things like that, right? So we have more reliable statistics on that. And we find that when there is anyone in the home other than a biological parent, whether it's mom's boyfriend, dad's girlfriend, stepmom, stepdad, mom's girlfriend, dad's boyfriend, any biological, uh, non-biological adult figure in the home the instance of abuse of children goes up about 20 fold oh wow i didn't know it was that bad i knew it was bad it's really it was bad. bad it's it's exponentially super it's very high and you can go um in my book i have cdc stats on that oh, wow. um also the rate of fatal child abuse goes way up wow. compared to having biological parents in the home um and like you said it's just so accepted now it's like more kid. When I was growing up, I was the only kid in my friend group that had divorced parents. Now my kids are the only kids in their friend group who have married parents. Yeah, yeah. So we're it, talking it's... like one generation. It has become the norm to have divorced parents and not live with both your biological parents. Yeah, it's it's really insane to me because my wife and I are both from divorced parents, mm -hmm. and um, you know now you see it all the time. You see memes being shared around of. Um, literally two parents with the step parents involved in a kid and it's supposed to be some rosy pollyanna picture of saying look at all these parents getting along together and co-parenting right right and my question always is like well if you guys get along so great now like what what changed right like you guys have a kid together and once again this isn't to say that every single situation monolithically works out no matter what no, but like yeah. um 
if you guys can still get along, like what's stopping you from staying together, especially when you have a child in that situation, especially laying out the stats you just laid out. And this is kind of the point that I want to draw people's attention to when I'm kind of, you know, swatting the single mother or the step parents hornet nest is that like, you guys don't understand how bad this can actually be. And once again, this isn't yeah. to say all step parents beat the living shit out of their kids no. and they're, you know, murdering their kids in their night, because look, I have two great step parents. I really do. Love them both dearly. They did a lot for me. But, um, you know, the likelihood if I was living with them for any extended period of time of me being abused by them is significantly higher than that yeah. of my biological parents. And this is because, once again, men's natural drive. We want to know that, that fucking kid is ours, right? Yeah. That is the most important thing for men. Right. <laughs> so, therefore, if you're raising another man's kid, well what's your investment in it? But once again, this has been so normalized because you're no longer the stepdad. You're the dad who stepped up, right? And once again, this isn't to shit on them or say there's anything morally wrong with them, but this is just the tropes that are reported out so that way we can tell women to always feel good about themselves and that don't right. worry, there will always be a man for you. Yeah, so like there's there's no system. There's no, we live in a fallen world with fallible human beings. There's never going right. to be a system that prevents all abuse, that mm -hmm. prevents all bad situations from happening. However, like I said, feminism and no-fault divorce, which I rail against all the time, were proposed as solutions to a problem. They did not fix the problem. They exacerbated the problem. We have more vulnerable women and children now that we've had feminism and no-fault divorce than we did before. And the reason for that is if you're a predator, let's say you are one of the bad men that's out there and you're predatory towards children or towards women, a single mom is like your prime choice because she's probably uh, statistically much more likely to be impoverished, much more likely to be isolated, uh, much more likely to be desperate and have lower standards. And there's no dad around to protect the kids who are in the situation. So if you're a child predator, single moms are like an all-you-can-eat buffet. It's what they go for every time. And this is one of the reasons that those uh, step-parent statistics are so high. Um, I, I, My husband, I was married before him. A terrible divorce before him. It was awful. Uh, I was a victim of domestic violence myself. So I'm not talking about this... Um, like hating on single moms, which is something I get all the time. Terrible things happen. But me, even me looking back on my life and me looking at other situations, I wouldn't have been in that situation if I hadn't been raised to think that, think things like, oh, marriage is just a piece of paper. I don't need the piece of paper to tell me I love someone and I can live with my boyfriend and it's basically the same thing. Plus, you know, we can share the bills and I can move out of my parents' <laughs> house faster. So okay. I did what a lot of us do, which is you think all those things are fine. You move in together, you get pregnant and now you're stuck there. But the guy can take off any time. Uh, things can go really sideways. So I was basically thinking of myself as a man and not understanding that, okay, this guy has no incentive to marry me or treat me like I'm valuable because I'm just totally giving myself away for free. Right. Like at that point, what is the incentive, right? So, I mean, it's just in the way that we think about these things. It's not that we're proposing use of government force to make people behave a certain way. I think all of these things um, really revolve around propaganda and stigma mm -hmm right? We should stigmatize behaviors that are proven to be harmful. We should right. not, we should encourage behaviors that generally 
keep things on track and, and make life better for everyone in society. So we're not, we're not saying like, oh, we should make things illegal and we have to, it's not really about that. The reason we're in the position we're in is because we've had decades and decades of false propaganda being pushed at us. So I've done some stuff like where I evaluate and analyze Disney movies and some of the feminist themes in Disney movies that really took off in the eighties, like the little mermaid being the first most obvious one. Mm -hmm. So the, the original fairy tale of the little mermaid was a tale of like self-sacrifice and higher meaning and, uh, and, loving someone being willing to die for somebody because you love them so in the first little mermaid in order to stay human she would have to kill prince eric and his new bride because he married someone else and not her otherwise she was going to disappear into sea foam and never exist mm -hmm. and she chose to do that and sacrifice herself rather than kill the man she loved even though he chose someone else and because of that she was rewarded with like um Kind of eternal life as an angel is kind of how it was portrayed in the original like old timey fairy tale in the disney version <laughs> he, right ariel's dad catches her doing stuff she's not supposed to do sneaking up to the surface he tries to lay down the law and say no that's dangerous you you're young and you don't know what you're doing so i'm gonna put my foot down and tell you no well what man has right to tell a young girl not to do what she wants, <laughs> not to follow her heart, right? And she sings a whole song about how she wants to be free and do what she wants. She wants to do what thou wilt, right? And her mean patriarchal dad, who's an actual patriarch because he's king of the ocean, she rebels. She goes to a witch, right, mm -hmm. to get a magic potion to go do what she wants, ends up getting not only herself in dire trouble, but endangering the entire sea kingdom, including her father. And then in the end, the man sacrifices himself to save her. Like Prince Eric puts himself in harm's way and her dad, King Triton, puts himself in harm's way to save her, even though she defied everybody to follow her own will and do what she wanted. Um, the men sacrifice themselves to save her. She doesn't get punished. There's no repercussion. In fact, she becomes a princess and gets everything she wants. And there's a big rainbow and everyone's happy. So it's like the moral <laughs> of the story became do whatever you want. The men will throw themselves on the funeral pyre to save you anyway. <laughs> and you don't have to do it. And you learn no lesson. There's no repercussion. And you just have a happy ending, right? And from there, the Disney movies just get worse and worse with like the princess stuff and the female empowerment. So again... We're just straight up lying to women and the people who benefit from from women behaving this way are the men who do want to kind of you know sleep with every girl they can get get as many notches on their belt as they can um and things like that so it it just ruins society and it makes it makes if you're somebody who is libertarian minded or maybe you understand some things about the global elites right? Regardless of your political affiliation, if you care about those things, you should care about the fabric of society and the nuclear family, right. because these things being destroyed makes all of us like ripe for the picking to the point where we can't resist anything. There's no resisting tyranny. There's no resisting evil because we're all atomized and we're all helpless and we're all just, you know, uh, cooming all day to porn and things like that. So it's, <laughs> there's nothing left to fight for and defend anyway. Nobody cares. It's just keep giving me my dopamine hits and whatever, right? We saw that with the 
the recent injections that were strongly encouraged by authorities where people were like, oh, but if I can't go to Coachella, like, I guess I'll just get it because I want to go to Coachella and I want to travel and I want to do stuff. I want to go to concerts and I love music too, but it's just like the, yeah, the resistance, (laughs) the resistance is so low now because Mm. There's no higher concept of sacrificing yourself for family or for country or anything like that anymore. Okay, so I actually I'm really happy that you ended on that note there because um I was gonna say I was gonna throw you a little bit of a curveball, but this kind of dovetails perfectly into what I wanted to talk to you about. So um I am an agnostic theist, so I would say that I don't believe in God or I don't know if there's a God, but if I would have to err one way or the other, I would believe that there is at this point. Um, I wouldn't have said that probably six or seven years ago, conveniently, before I met my wife. Um, (laughs) So, uh, and it's funny because I I was talking to my friend Tommy Sammons, who runs the uh, Year Zero podcast. Perhaps you're familiar with him. Um, And he's really been, I I don't want to say he's been trying to sell me on Orthodox Christianity because he's not, but him and I have these conversations about it because I find it absolutely fascinating. And it just so happens that all the best people I know in like this whole podcasting Mm -hmm. sphere happen to be Orthodox Christians as well, just just conveniently. So um, I'll never say I'm sold on it, at least not at this time, but um, what kind of sold you on this? Because I notice a pattern in the way that you talk about a lot of these subjects in um, you know, occult feminism, which is obviously mm-hmm. this idea that um, it's based around demonic things, if, I, mm-hmm. if I'm if i understanding that correctly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So when I was talking to him, it was funny because I literally saw a truck right afterwards. I work as a mechanic and I'm going up around a hill and I see a truck that says Kane is able on the back of it. I'm like, holy shit, what the hell's going on? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Synchro. So, so um, I, I guess... Like when I look at all these things, it it seems to me that whether they're demonic or not, you can identify them as bad and that things that are good typically seem to be the same patterns that we see in religious texts. So I know that's pretty meta and big, but um, I I think I've heard you before say that you kind of had a radical libertarian phase. and I think we all do. And then kind of like move out of it to one degree or another. I still consider myself an anarchist at heart, but I realize that that's as utopian as socialism. So um, I I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but um, what was really the selling point for you when it came to Orthodox Christianity and um, to speak to the meta level, what do you think about like, was this when you were writing your book that really kind of solidified your belief surrounding this? Yeah, it's uh, life is such a winding road. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I I was raised Christian. I've always been like nominally Christian. I was okay. kind of I was raised out in the country in the Midwest where things are pretty conservative. Um, and I think there is an interesting dichotomy between people who are raised in huge cities their whole life and people who are raised like out in the middle of nowhere like me. And I think part of that is if you are, you're basically touching grass all your life, right? Like literally and figuratively where it's like, you know, I saw from a very young age where food comes from. Like I went deer hunting. I worked on dairy farms. I did gardening and stuff. And that's how everyone around me lived. We all knew where our food came from. And when I got bigger and moved to a city as an adult, And I was talking about deer hunting season back home and how I used to go deer hunting with my dude friends because I was like a big tomboy. 
the girls I worked with were like horrified and they were like, you would kill a deer. That's so mean. How could you do that? And, you know, because they think of deer like Bambi. And I realized these girls, like as we were talking, they'd never seen like a cow in real life. Um, They thought meat just comes from the store. Like it, not even joking. These girls thought that meat was just like a thing you buy in the store. And I'm like, yeah, where, where do you think it comes from? Like, do you know what beef is? It's a cow. And they're like, I guess it is. I know that's silly, but they really just like, they're like, why would you kill a deer? We could just go to the store and buy meat. And I was like, (laughs) what? So, yeah. So it was just very weird for me. That was like my first thing of like, okay, not everybody sees things the same way. Sure. Uh, And then I had my first kids around that time. When I was 20, I became a mom. And having kids will really challenge everything you think you know about life and morality because suddenly your values change and you have to think about how am I going to teach this tiny person right from wrong? Because all of us have had the experience where your parents are trying to teach you right from wrong and they totally screw it up and they say Mm -hmm. something really dumb that doesn't make any sense and the little kid will poke holes in it. Like I had that all the time with my parents because my mom was like a radical leftist Marxist, feminist, and my dad was like a Rush Limbaugh conservative neocon guy, right? Mm -hmm. So I had like this crazy crazy like opposite ends of the spectrum and I would get completely different answers about things from both parents I had totally different rules from both parents so I think that made me think about it so then when I had my kids it was like okay what when I tell her she can't do this because it's wrong and she goes why what's my justification for that like how do I know what's right and wrong or what's good and bad and I know everybody has their own way of thinking about that and explaining that And I was more libertarian at that time because I got really curious after that big event that happened in 2001 in New York and in DC. I got very curious about what was going on with that. And like a lot of people started to go down some rabbit holes. And I think when you first start doing that, you get this idea that, okay, if the people, the people who are doing all the bad things are authority figures, right? So authority must be bad. But then you're trying to justify to your child, how do I know right from wrong? How do I know good from bad? Um, And then they get a little older and I'm like, okay, we should probably go to church. Like I should probably be a good mom and bring my kids to church. I want them to know some fundamental things about Christianity if this is what I believe. And at that time I was just like a nominal, like probably like a Bible church Protestant, right? Um, And so I started going to different churches with them, looking for one that I thought was a good fit. And then I'm going, oh, how do I know which one's right? And, you know, when I go to this church, they have this interpretation of what the Bible says. When I go to this church, they have a different interpretation. And how do I sort that out if we're all Christians and we have all these different interpretations, right? So this just, these things all kind of came together for me. Like at the same time, over the course of many years of me going, okay, if authority is bad, but we can't agree on what the Bible says. Is there an authority that knows what the Bible actually says? Or the... So I, I wasn't sure what to do about these problems for a long time. And I was just kind of stumbling through it like we all do, trying to do my best, trying to sort things out. And I started getting into like political debates. And I was a big like ANCAP for a long time. And I started debating that with people who were smarter and more experienced than me. 
And not only did they kick my butt in some things, but I, I mean, I would sit there and think and think and think through these problems and talk to my husband about it and be like, how do we solve this problem of hierarchy? Right. Um, and I remember watching the walking dead, which is like, right. This great reset event that, that a lot of ANCAPs talk about. Cause a lot of times there's this idea and this theory that there'll be a reset of some kind, some kind of like an EMP or like a mass disaster or a nuclear attack or something. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we can like have a reset and start over without this authoritarian government stuff. Yeah. It's kind of funny because a lot of the ANCAP libertarians would probably be in the bottom of this metaphorical space. If you yeah. met any libertarians yeah. in person. Well, that was me. That was me when the walking dead came out and people laugh at this. They think it's funny, but I had like an epiphany because in the beginning of that series, when it is a re I mean, it's a reset event most of the world died and, and there's zombies and there's no CDC, there's no government. The first thing everybody did before finding food, before finding safety or shelter was find a leader, find everybody's freaking out. Everybody's panicking. What do we do? Put someone in charge. Right. And they pick Rick ends up being the guy in charge and he doesn't even really want to be in charge necessarily. And like, there's a whole bunch of stuff around that, but I was like, this is true like this is a true thing that i can't find a way past which is when whenever the hierarchy is wiped out whenever the authority is wiped out the first thing people do is demand that somebody be in charge and that's because we really aren't these little islands unto ourselves that are complete individuals who just can all individually do whatever we want and it'll all work out and so like that was the beginning of me going, oh, shoot, I think hierarchy is inevitable. And then you look around and find that there's hierarchy everywhere. Mm -hmm. And in the Bible, there's hierarchy among the angels. There's hierarchy among the demons. Um, there's hierarchy among all of God's creation. And, it, you know, this was when I had already been, I was already pretty like anti-feminist by the time I was like 20. Because having a baby made me go, wait a minute, this is a bunch of shit i've been told a bunch of lies um so like i was thinking okay i don't think hierarchy has to be bad and maybe maybe sometimes it can be bad but so i started thinking through that stuff and then 2020 happened and i i was already thinking that there was something wrong in protestantism like it didn't have like a central cohesive worldview that made sense because each protestant that i went to would try to justify why they were right and there would be holes in the story and the worldview would not be cohesive and it would make the Bible look contradictory. And I was just like, what the, I know there's something missing, right? Well, all the churches closed at the beginning of 2020. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, what do I do now? And I asked my friends, like, what are you guys doing? Do you watch like services online? Like, what do you do? And somebody sent me um, some information on like early church history and orthodoxy, which I'd never heard of. Mm -hmm. I was like, I've never... I've never heard of this. How did I know that the church that Christ and the apostles established survived intact, unchanged until now? Wait, you're telling me this exists and it's here and I can go to one? That's crazy. How did I not know this? So that blew my mind just that I, I thought it was just Protestants and Catholics like most of us do in the West. I didn't know that the church of the first thousand years was still around. So I was like, well, that's super intriguing and I want to know more. So that same friend sent me a debate between Jay Dyer and a Protestant. I don't remember which one. But I'm sitting there doing my nails like a girl and listening to it. 
and I have my earbuds in and my husband's like nearby and I'm listening to him debate the Protestant and I'm super skeptical still, but he was just crushing the guy and just kicking his ass. And I would be like, shit, damn it. You know, and my husband's like, what's going on over there? I'm like, oh, nothing. Just my whole worldview is crumbling in front of me. But then I was like, okay, so let's look into this orthodoxy thing. And I wasn't super steeped in theology, really, just basic surface level stuff. Didn't know much church history, had to do a lot of reading. But as I did, and as I learned about it, it was like all the things about Christian, I knew some of it, I knew it was true. Like I really felt it was true, but there were things about it that seemed incoherent or contradictory or that they didn't make sense. Orthodoxy solved all those issues for me. It was, it, it provided a coherent worldview a coherent explanation of Christianity, of what, it, how we can believe these things. Because I had terrible time evangelizing prior to this, because if you've ever talked to an atheist or an agnostic, they'll say things that like, you don't have a good answer for from a Protestant worldview. Like, okay, if God is so good, why did he like wipe out the whole world with a flood? Or why does this verse seem to contradict this verse? Well, that's because, um, Protestants have totally kind of, not to be mean Protestants, I love you, I love you all. Uh, they've kind of bastardized the actual meaning, the actual original interpretation. It's just a different worldview. It's trying to take a legalistic post-enlightenment approach to Christianity, which doesn't work. And when you go back and read the early church fathers and the patristic interpretation of Christianity, suddenly it's this incredibly cohesive worldview. And I like to say, uh, some of my other friends say similar things. If you're somebody who's gone down rabbit holes looking for the truth, you will find the church that Jesus built at the bottom of every rabbit hole. If you go long enough and you look hard enough, that's where you end up. And I think that's why so many of your friends and so many of my friends who started out like in the truther movement or as anarchists or libertarians, and we're generally truth seekers, right? We're generally people who are like, okay, I don't believe whatever the mainstream narrative is. I'm going to go looking at the bottom of every rabbit hole. That's what you find. At least that's what it's been for me and for so many other people. So okay, that I know that's really long. No, but it's that's not like okay, a super yeah. simple answer. So yeah, no, no. That I'm I'm really glad you laid it out that way because it seems to that tracks with what I hear from most other people is that they found yeah. that Orthodox Christianity was very concrete. And I'm coming at this as a person who like when you say Protestant or Catholic, I have no clue okay. what, <laughs> yeah. what, what the difference is. Yeah, but um. Like when I hear people kind of poke holes in the religious stuff, like, oh, well, why would God do this? Why would God do that? Yeah. Um, like when you take the biblical explanation and just interpret that as like very materialistically, as in like, yes. just read it like, oh, well, why would you flood the whole world? Like, I, I think you're missing the forest for the trees, if you will. Like, yes. this is supposed to be a theme. This is an idea. And, yeah. and it, it's kind of like when the Manosphere guys kind of say like alpha or beta, like you're not literally an alpha male. You're not a silverback gorilla on the plane beating your chest to, to signal to other women. No, this is a placeholder term to move on to bigger ideas. That's kind of how I'm looking <clears throat> at these religious texts when I hear people 
talk about them or when I hear them explain is that this is kind of like a pattern that was witnessed one time in history that was documented. And then this is meant to play out throughout history over and over again, because um, as I think you've laid out with feminism, um, a lot of this stuff tends to come in cycles, right? Where it's yeah. not necessarily anything new, but um, it may just have like a different mask or this may just be presented a different way, but this, this has happened before throughout history. So this kind of gets to the idea for me. Is it like, is this the chicken or the egg? Is this human nature to do this? Or is this because, um, you know, we have a, a religious connection to something greater than ourselves? So I know that's very, very like big picture. But... I love meta stuff. I, <laughs> yeah. love me I love metaphysics is probably my favorite part of philosophy after like sure. epistemology. Well, I don't know, maybe metaphysics more than epistemology, because I don't think you can have epistemology without your metaphysics. <laughs> but I, I love like big thinking type of stuff like that, which is another thing that I don't know if I'm a tomboy because of that, or I, it's a chicken or the egg thing, right? <laughs> but it's like, most women don't think that way. There's a reason like very few philosophy degrees are earned by women and things like that. So I think my brain is weird. I'm like a weird mixture of things, but I love thinking that way. I like thinking in terms of like meta ideas and transcendental categories and things like that. And <clears throat> like what you were saying about the Bible, um, there's a stark difference between Eastern Christianity with orthodoxy. The reason we call it orthodoxy, we were originally like the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, mm -hmm. but Rome broke away from that church around 1054, the great schism, and it became Roman Catholic. So when most people hear the word Catholic, that's what they're thinking of that they have a pope it's a whole different system they innovated away from the original church and changed a lot of dogmas and doctrines and kind of innovated their own religion really and then protestants because there was so much corruption in the roman catholic church broke away from it and did the same thing they uh reinterpreted and made a different paradigm to put christianity into <clears throat> The Eastern conception is very different from the Western, both Roman Catholic and Protestant, because the thinking at that time was very different. The people who were around at the time of Christ and shortly after in the first few centuries were dealing with like Greek philosophy and Hellenism and things like that. So it's like a whole different, we call it the phronema. It's like a whole different worldview, whole different way of thinking, whereas the Western view is very scholastic and very legalistic. Um, so there's less mysticism and there's less um, philosophical thinking involved. So in America, which is primarily a Protestant nation, it was settled by Protestants who were leaving Europe because even the European Protestants were going to kill them and didn't like them because they were pretty radical. They came here. Um, and so our conception in America of Christianity is very like the way they view the Bible it's like a text that just says what it means and it means what it says. You just open it and you just read it and it gives you the gospel, brother. And you just, you hear the gospel and then you accept Jesus as your savior and then you're saved and you're all done. <laughs> the end, right? But the Bible wasn't, cre it wasn't made to be a, an individual study guide or a self-help book or an Ikea manual that you can just open and read on your own. You don't need anything. You just read your Bible. Um, the Bible was compiled by the church over the course of centuries. It was meant to be a liturgical book used in the church in our service, which is called the Divine Liturgy. And it's a bunch of different scriptures that 
took several councils to decide what was going to be in it and be canonized and what wasn't and things like that. So the thing that some of the most powerful proofs for Christianity were lost in the West because the Eastern conception of the scripture is that it is a like a metaphysical truth. It's got layers upon layers of meaning within it. It is both allegorical and literal. Um, and it's not something that one person in a lifetime can just read it and figure out what everything means. So we have the entire 2000 year life of the church and all of the, the many saints who have come throughout time, the church fathers working together, guided by the Holy Spirit through the church to give us the actual interpretation. Now, if you're not Christian, you might be like, okay, fine, whatever. But man, if you go and read the patristic writings about the Bible and how to understand it, if you get an Orthodox study Bible, which has all the study notes in it with that original patristic church interpretation, it will blow your mind. Like even if you're not Christian whatsoever, the layers of meaning and truth in it, if you're a truth oriented person is going to pull, it's going to pull you in and it's going to change a lot of the way that you think, especially as like a modern Western person. It's really cool. Like I could do Bible hermeneutics all day. That's another thing that I really love. Um, and I think if more people were exposed to that, I really think that there's going to be a huge, um, return to orthodoxy in america because protestantism is falling apart i mean it's become nonsense prosperity gospel mega church craziness you know you've got dudes in skinny jeans and rock bands and coffee bars and that's church now this is christianity now it's become so uh atomize that it's meaningless right are the mormons right are the seventh day adventists right is it the pentecostals is it the baptists nobody knows they don't agree it's just become this like wishy-washy watered down thing i'm not saying you can't get truth from it i'm certainly not saying you can't be saved uh god we our church doesn't really make like a proclamation about who is saved because we know that god can reach people any way he wants to um but we would say that for most people it's going to be joining the church and joining to the body of Christ and experiencing and partaking in the energies of God, which is what we do through our sacraments. So if you're somebody who's truth oriented and you're like, there might be something to Christianity. I don't really know. I'm not so sure, especially in the West when we're tainted by Vatican scandals. And again, truth or people know about the Vatican and you guys know that it's like one of the world's oldest um, intelligence agencies, one of the world's oldest money laundering central bank type of apparatuses um you might be really really black pilled against christianity for those reasons and you would be right to be you should be skeptical of all of that just look into orthodoxy read some of the writings of the early church fathers and just see what you think nobody's asking you to do more than that because if you do that and it's still you're not convinced then no don't worry about it but i think People with even just a little bit of a discerning mind who are looking for truth, they read it and it just changes their worldview. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what I know. You might be <laughs> me a year from now. You might be like, dang, because I went through that too. I mean, I think, I think we do do that, right? When you kind of realize, okay, maybe, maybe anarchy isn't like the answer. Maybe it's not an answer in and of itself. And you have to reevaluate things like, Right now, I'm super black-pilled on American politics in general because of all the stuff that I know about it now. So, like, mm -hmm. I don't 
I like political theory and political philosophy, but I don't really give a shit who wins elections. Yeah. I like, mean, it largely doesn't seem to matter, matter anymore. It really doesn't. Um, no, if you know who's really running things, it's like, yeah. who cares what little puppets they put up, you know, yes. for the most part. Locally, locally, there might still be sure. reason to, to pay attention to that stuff. But, I mean, I think America's been over for almost 100 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I, I think it's I think it's a <laughs> relatively reasonable uh, kind of conclusion to come to. So the one thing that um, I did text Tommy about this morning because he's been kind of my um, mental punching bag for these ideas. Yeah. Um, wh- when I see people expressing the concerns over every, and maybe I'm a little bit sloppy in this, but I see some people kind of not hesitating to call people demonic and saying this is demonic. My hesitation to get on board with this is the fact that I think a lot of people want to, um, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Yeah. So um, the, the, the problem with me seems to be that like you're a lot of people want to not believe that they wouldn't do the same things that they see these crazy woke leftist people doing in a certain situation it's kind of the same deal when you read the book ordinary men which i don't know if you have but it's it's absolutely fascinating so basically um if you're not familiar with it, it it's um uh, they follow a police battalion in Nazi Germany and figure out how they can take ordinary policemen and turn them into literal Nazis that would go out and do yeah. the stuff that Nazis did. And it's a very, very fascinating book, and it's absolutely horrifying. But um, my problem when people you know, just write stuff off as demonic or when people say, oh, you're just a Nazi, right? You, you know, insert whatever term here, is that I think people remove the human element from it and once again, don't think that they wouldn't do that or they right. assume that they wouldn't be that person. But my problem is that I know I'm a flawed person and everybody else should know that once again, given a certain situation, if it were defending your family, if it was defending your ideology at that time, you would right. be the same person out on the streets doing whatever. And oh. And the other concern with this for me is that I'm I'm a heavy metal kid, right? I mean, I I grew up going. Oh my god! Oh, I can't believe it! Oh my god! Okay, so you're you're gonna put this. I just threw up devil horns, but everybody relax, everybody relax. Okay, I'm not actually I'm not over here throwing Illuminati hand symbols. I'm I'm just being a metalhead kid. Um, you could probably see my amp right there. That's my Paul Reed Smith MT15. Sweet. Um, so, so, and I have a Zach Wild guitar. I mean, I have Dimebag Daryl's guitar and Zach Wild's guitar tattoo. Oh, that's back. awesome. Yes. So, so cool. <laughs> I, I can't believe we're all the way here now. But like I said, you're going to put my, <laughs> my next concern right to bed. So I, I once again, I know I throw, I'm throwing a lot at you, but I'm almost worried that we could see another satanic panic where once again, you bring up the idea. And I think it is a net positive that people are returning to religion because I do believe this brings about a more moral people. But I don't want the culture that fostered everything that I absolutely love that is political and to a large degree apolitical um, come to an end because people don't like the imagery. Um, Do you share that concern at all or do you think I'm just a little paranoid? No, I think you're totally spot on with that. And there's a couple things I would say. The first thing I would say is um, there's something we know for sure that happens um, it's like a, in, in intelligence agencies, they call it a limited hangout. So when yes. something is about to get exposed, that's pretty bad and might cause some public backlash, they'll try to get ahead of it by um, releasing some of the details or even most of the details mm, or something right. similar to it 
and being like, look over here and people can freak out a little bit and then nobody bothers to look further into it and they can kind of get away with whatever. So like the original like 80s, 90s satanic panic, actually there were some things going on. So uh, there was satanic cults that were going on and were happening, but it was all connected to CIA programs like the Phoenix program. Um, there's some pretty good evidence now that the intelligence agencies were experimenting during the Vietnam War with creating super soldiers, but instead may have unleashed a rash of serial killers, including like Jeffrey Dahmer may have been connected, Son of Sam, a whole bunch. There was just a Netflix uh, documentary that came out about one of them that was, it was related to the Son of Sam. I don't remember, it was him and one other guy, and that this all led back to actual cults that had CIA connections. Charles Manson would be one of those, okay. right? So I think that part of the satanic panic at that time was a bit of a cover-up because they were trying to keep this sort of stuff from coming out. But the reason that works so well in America is because we have this Protestant, like Puritan heritage, right? And the Puritans were they were bonkers. Okay. In my in my book, if you get to read it, the first couple chapters, I talk about how radical the Protestants that first came here were. Because a lot of people don't know. The reason there was witch trials and stuff like that is because they were doing some crazy stuff. There was crazy things going on. These people were from England and they would mix some of the like pagan occult practices of England with their Puritan practices because once again they got rid of church authority they threw it out they they discarded it and they said we don't need that we just need our bible and like a meeting house in fact they wouldn't even have crosses in their church they wouldn't have pastors they would let females uh be deacons and like uh the unofficial officials so it was kind of an attempt at like a an anarchist christianity a little bit so so when that happens and there's no central agreed upon dogma of any kind you can mix whatever you want. So they mixed a lot of crazy stuff in and there was, you know, some witchcraft elements and things like that. Um, but then there would be these massive overreactions where people would find these things out and freak out. And then like, we have to burn everyone and cleanse everything. And uh, this, this idea in Christianity is a very Western thing. In Eastern Orthodoxy, there's not really a satanic panic because we don't have the same conception of original sin. We don't have the same conception of the fall, and we don't have the same conception of how the demonic works. So if you look into that, it, it puts those things in a much more, like, it makes much more sense. You don't get this like what you were just saying, like this concern of like, okay, but if everything's demonic, where's our responsibility and where does the human element come in? And we don't think of it that way. We think of it like, um, if your passions are controlling you, that might be due to demonic influence, but the way that you fix that is by doing things like fasting and prayer, um, talking to your priest and getting counseling from your spiritual father, about how to overcome these passions so that they're not ruling and controlling you. So we don't have this idea that like, oh, we just have to exercise and burn everybody and then somehow it'll be better. We have to be like Tipper Gore and make all the metal music illegal and we have to censor everything. It, those things become less necessary. It's just, it's a whole different way of looking at things. So um, we have something called economia, which is a concept that like, we're all on a spiritual path um, we're all trying to overcome our passions 
and become more divinized, become closer to God. And that's done through the life of the church, but it's different for each person. So like if you're, uh, there's even monks who are alcoholics, right? So you're an alcoholic monk in the year 500 and you drink 20 drinks a day. You just have the worst alcohol problem. For him, his priest, his spiritual father might say, okay, go to 19 drinks a day. See if you can do that. And then, you know, maybe he would only get to 19 drinks for five years and it would take him another five years to get to 18. And it's more of like a individual idea of overcoming your own personal passions and vices. There's not like this, um, it's not like Roman Catholicism or Protestantism where we're going to like beat you or burn you or make you flog yourself or like, like we don't have that same conception of things, if that makes sense. We know that there's evil in the world. We know there's demonic forces, but we don't deal with it in that way. So I think that um, the, the cycle, the self-feeding cycle of the satanic panic stuff is like a uniquely Western Christian thing because of their, they have this idea that flesh is evil. Your flesh is evil and the flesh is evil. And, and uh, like, you know, anything that's fun is evil. I grew up with like kind of that, that Protestant world of like no drinking alcohol ever because it's evil. Right. And like no, no loud music. And it was kind of like Footloose. It wasn't Baptist. It was a Calvinist version. But if you think of the movie Footloose, how like dancing is evil, everything's evil. Everything's the devil or like right, Bobby right. Boucher's mom, everything's the devil that she doesn't like. We don't have that. So we have feasting and fasting. So we go through a period of fasting where we learn to control our passions and deny ourselves. And then there's a season of a feasting where we celebrate and we indulge a little bit and we all have wine like at Pascha when the great fast of Lent is over everybody's partying it's like 2 a.m at church everybody's drinking wine and we're but we're celebrating in proper context the resurrection of Christ and fellowship in the church and so it takes those things and puts them in their proper place so that you don't have this crazy black and white thinking of like all all worldly things are evil and you can't listen to music and you can't watch movies and you can't ever have sex and even once you're married it has to be missionary only and only if you're having babies you know like that craziness Mm -hmm. does not come out of orthodoxy at all it comes from like later reinterpretations and okay so so, yeah that's Absolutely fascinating. And, and that really did put it to bed. So kind of what it, I think the best way in my mind, and you can confirm this for me, if you mm-hmm. think this is a good way to summarize this, it seems a lot more nuanced as in, and Tommy laid this out to me really, really beautifully. I'm going to have to send him this episode because <laughs> I've mentioned him so much. I, th- I hope I do him proud. Um, <laughs> the way that he explained to me his relationship with Christ was that this is kind of like an exercise because I mean, this podcast is called In Liberty and Health, where yeah. I talk about, you know, developing muscle and developing your physical well-being and then obviously you know spiritual and you know overall mental health um his relationship with christ is kind of like an exercise where like let's say for me right now if i were to approach and pray the way that you or tommy or somebody does for me Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be quite as clear because i haven't necessarily trained that part of myself or that relationship with another being right so therefore it's going to be very very difficult for me to touch that um for you somebody who's done this for over a long period of time your relationship is going to be a lot more solid so you're able to get in touch to that certain relationship a lot easier it's a lot more nuanced so basically um you know somebody who eats a lot 
and has a problem with food who's very obese may have a trouble once again their passion right now is eating so therefore yeah they may be led in your worldview by demonic force that causes them to eat and that's their passion that may be a demonic force so therefore them fasting from food may be beneficial for them and may that bring them closer to christ in that regard um is that a good summary and would you describe that as accurate yeah that's it's really close so um when we pray or we fast or we give alms give charity um we and when we go to the liturgy and we take the eucharist or we go to confession we're we are participating in the divine energies of god through the life of the church and through the sacraments through our prayer through our fast all those things i just said um and so for us, it's not a mental status like it is, in, say, if you're a Baptist and you just say, I accept Jesus into my heart. Now I'm saved and I have, I'm sealed. And I have, as Jim Bob calls it, the tramp stamp <laughs> like of, <laughs> that you're sealed and saved. And, and from then on, I can just do what I want. And it doesn't matter because I'm forgiven. And I just, I just verbally profess that I believe in Christ and that's it. We don't, we have a concept called theosis, which means that when Christ came and died on the cross, he recapitulated the universe and provided a connection back to God for us. And through the life of the church and through the sacraments, we participate in the divine energies and those things prepare us for when we inevitably leave this earth and meet God, we will experience his like holy fiery presence as like a warm good thing whereas people who have gone further from the will of god and distanced themselves from him and rejected him in the life of the church they will experience it as like a burning fire like a blistering burning like you've been in the sun too long you've got a terrible sunburn like that's kind of an analogy i guess Mm -hmm. um so we don't even have the same conception of hell hell isn't a place created by god to throw the bad people right? Hell is just, you have made your choice through the course of your life to reject God, to deviate further and further from his will, to follow your own. And because of that, you see this happen with people, right? If they just outright reject God, like the angry atheists who are bitter and they're like, I had a girl tell me the other day, she was like, well, if God is real, he's a dick, he's a jerk because he did this and he did that. That do you think she's going to enjoy being the presence of God if she if she dies and goes to the same place I go to? No, she's going to experience it as something awful because she wants to follow her own will. Um, so that's kind of our conception of it. And through practice, praxis of the religion, through practice of fasting and prayer and trying to align ourselves with God's will more and more, trying to overcome the passions because demons can't make you do anything but they will tempt you. They've been around forever. They know our will. They know how we work. They know what your weaknesses are from just observing you. And they will tempt you with whatever they think they can tempt you with. And they will just push your weak spot until you give in, which is why we kind of practice overcoming that, um, leaning on God to do that. And um, so that's kind of like what your friend was saying. That's that's basically what I think he was saying as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it's through the practice. It's literally practice. Right. Mm-hmm. And and just like anything else, you get better at it. Um, you become less distracted during prayer. Fasting gets a little bit easier. And you continue to challenge yourself. I know you're a, you're a weightlifting guy, right? Well, I'm a weightlifting girl. Nice. And yeah, I've been lifting for like 15 years. It's my favorite Easy. thing. It keeps me sane. It keeps me 
it keeps me physically strong and healthy and all that. But for me, it's like very mental and it helps me. Yes. If I, if I can crush difficult things in the gym, you know, when you're in like the last set on a hack squat or something, you just want to die and you're like, F these hack squats, F them. Yeah. Um, but you get through it and you push through it. And then you go back the next time and you hit it even harder. It really mentally fortifies you. It's kind of a similar idea that the more you practice, the more you participate, the closer your will becomes aligned with the will of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that, very that's different. It. Yeah. Very different conception than just this idea that I have a mental status of believing. And because I profess right. with my tongue and think in my head that Jesus is real and that he's the good guy, I'm saved. It's very different from that. Right. It, it seems to be, uh, to put it crudely, like a state of being, but it, it's funny that yeah, you have It's kind like of... a whole way of living. It's a whole worldview. Yeah. Right. And it's, as somebody who's really interested in like philosophy and thinking through these systems and thinking on a meta level, I, it was amazing to me that this coherent worldview exists. It's like, I can't really articulate what a great gift it's been to me, like how amazing it's, and it's not easy. It's don't get me wrong. Just like weightlifting. We love it, but it's not easy. It hurts sometimes. It's really hard. And there's days you don't want to go. Um, same thing with learning to play the guitar. It's like you have to develop calluses on your fingers and certain things hurt to do. And until you practice them enough, it's very similar to that, but it gives you a cohesive, coherent worldview, a grounding for morality, a purpose, and um, it doesn't have these giant holes and contradictions in it the way that every other religion I've ever looked at does. So, yeah, that's every time I talk to somebody about this, I I, I do get more and more interested. So I, I think you're going to have to send me the uh, the orthodoxy study guide because I'm some cliff notes. Yeah, I, I think I'm. <laughs> I, I yeah, think I'm. Don't feel pressured to like jump right into it. In fact, they warn you against that, which is another great thing. It's not something, it's not like a, Jay Dyer always does a Billy Graham impression. Like, Come on down to the altar and have a slice of cheese pizza and say the sinner's prayer and join us. Um, it's like, it's totally a journey. So I'm still actually a catechumen, even though I've been doing this for a few years, I'm going to be baptized. Well, I'll be chrismated. The rest of my family will be baptized at Pascha, which is our Easter. Um, and it's a long process and they want you to understand everything and know what you're getting into and take your time getting there because they want it to be sincere. And it's a transformation. It's not a club you're joining. It's not like the Freemasons where you just show up a couple of times, do a little ceremonial jibba jabba and pay a fee and you're in, you know, it's not like that. It's a, it's a whole journey. So take your time. Like people ask me if they want to start looking into it, I always say, take your time. Don't feel pressured to jump in and accept it. Even if everyone you know is getting on the Orthodox bandwagon, take your time. Um, and then in addition to reading, just go to a divine liturgy and then talk to the priest after every church I've been to. I've been to like 11 different Orthodox churches when I travel and stuff. All of the priests I've ever met have been very willing to talk to you and answer any questions you have. Like after the service, they have a big coffee hour and they expect to be there for a while talking to people and things. So ask them all your hardest questions. Your, think of your most skeptical hardest questions and don't be afraid to ask them and talk to them and um, just try going for yourself at some point because orthodoxy here, not here. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Um, my my priest told me that I had to read uh, twice as much scripture for every like um, philosophical or theological work I was reading because immediately within just a few weeks of knowing me, he was like, you're very cerebral. You're up here um, and you want to know the theology and you want it. And he's like, that's great. That's great. But that's not what the life is about. And I want you to be actually doing the prayer. And I want you to actually be reading the scripture and stuff like that more than you're doing those things. He's like, it's not that you can't do those things, but I want you to be doing the practice, right? So, because he said he saw a lot of people get really interested initially, intellectually, and then they fall away because the the living it part, it takes time and you shouldn't try to jump into it all at once and like, oh, I'm going to fast. And not only am I, you see this with like vegans or carnivore diet people or crossfitters. Uh, I did carnivore for two years and I've, I've, I've had so many podcasts. I could go where on you for find hours. it and you jump in, you're like, oh, yeah. everyone needs to know about it. And I'm so hardcore. And you I'm evangelize. Yeah, yeah. And and he's like, that's actually the totally wrong way to go about it. We don't want you to do that because you'll bite off way more than you can chew and you'll burn out because it's not easy. You do have to like, just like starting working out, you got to start with those really unfun little five pound weights or whatever, or the bands or body weight squats. You got to start where you're at. And if you just go and try to deadlift 300 pounds, you're going to hurt yourself. It's the same thing. Like spiritually, you can actually hurt yourself if you try to jump way ahead too fast. So just take your time. Beautiful. Yeah. I I have like these moments of passion when I see my wife working out. She sent me a uh, a video of her deadlifting a little over 200 pounds. And I'm like, man, look at her go. God, she's such yeah. a badass. But, um, <laughs> I, I, I've got her working out consistently two days a week. I go four days a week. And, uh, you know, my, my record, I think, yeah, I had a 500 pound deadlift and I've deadlifted 455 pounds three times and, um, squatted 315 for five reps and the, the bench stuff on my, my chest kind of sucks, but that is oh. what it is. Yeah. It, it, I have crummy shoulders. Mm-hmm. I actually just graduated. I had a little, a little tear in this one, oh. um, and did some rehab. Well, I've completely torn this rotator cuff rehabbed it didn't need surgery I just did that with this one but it wasn't as bad and um but I went through a long powerlifting phase now I do kind of more like power building where I'm still lifting pretty heavy but it's a little more bodybuilding oriented I am 42 years old I'm I'm not trying to max bench press anymore because I want to still be able to move (laughs) but when I was deep into powerlifting my one rep max on bench was 155 uh deadlift was 250 and then I think my squat max at that time was like 205 Mm -hmm. and I was maybe like I don't know 140 pounds or 135 140 pounds so it's pretty good numbers for a girl um I could I'm probably actually like more muscular now than I was then just because um of a lot more volume and a lot more years But yeah, I love doing strong girl stuff. And that's why I think it's weird sometimes that I'm out here talking about why feminism sucks and that I actually do think the patriarchy is God's order. And I think that women were the primary benefactors of the patriarchy. We are the, we're the life givers. We're the child bearers. Okay. And one thing you find out if you ever do what I did and you're crazy and you have five kids is you find out that you can't you can't be the boss and have a career and also do that unless you want to do a crappy job at mothering. 
motherhood shouldn't be a part-time nights and weekends gig that you do around your career. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's become for most people. And when I had my kids, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to stay home with them. And I was really lucky. And I'm super thankful that my husband was willing to work 60, 70 hour weeks for over a decade to make that possible. So when I hear about how terrible men are and how they ain't shit and you don't need a man, you don't need a baby daddy. I'm like, I do. I do. And I'm probably way stronger than you. I'm probably much tougher than you. I could probably out debate you and I couldn't do it. Right. I, I can't raise five children on my own and do a good job. It's going, something has to give there. And I wanted to give my kids the best possible life growing up that they could have. And that requires both of their parents. They need their dad and they need their mom and they need to be at home with their family bonding. So like all of my kids are super best friends, get along amazingly and they're really close. And I didn't have that with my sister growing up at all. We didn't get along at all. We didn't even like each other. We still are completely opposite. And it's like, I don't, I'm the least likely person to have ended up here, but I'm super thankful that I did. And I think the most important thing I learned as a woman was to be able to look at myself and see my flaws and see where I'm screwing up, where my behavior leaves more to be desired and to think about what I bring to the table for my family. Because we teach and train women now that like, um, you're perfect just the way you are. You're a queen. And the the saying I hate more than anything is when girls say, if he don't like me at my worst, he doesn't deserve me at my best. <laughs> no, let me just look at you in your face and tell you, no, that's bullshit. And that's pretty evil, really. Yeah. It's pretty evil to think that you should never be expected to change or modify your behavior. You might not be doing something mean bad wrong right it's like there's lots of times that i have screwed up and made big mistakes and i think the only reason i was able to salvage my family from the wreckage is because i was willing to look at myself and be like okay it has to have something to do with me right things can't continually be going wrong and it's got nothing to do with me because that mm -hmm. just wouldn't make sense right. and it's hard it's hard to look at yourself and be like I screwed up. I shouldn't have acted that way or I shouldn't have treated you that way. And I'm sorry. And then actually change your behavior. And I think we train women specifically not to do that. If anything's wrong in the marriage, well, he has, to, he's a narcissist. He's a narcissist and he doesn't love you because if he loved you, he'd just worship you and give you everything you want. Um, it's to the point now that a man saying no to a woman is abuse. Right. Just, just the guy saying, you know, if my husband's like, I'm like, I want to do this. And he's like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. Like, I love you, but we're doing it this way because this is what needs to happen. Just a man doing that anymore is abuse. And women will leave a guy over that. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, a guy who lets them do whatever they want, they don't respect him and they end up leaving him anyway. <laughs> right? So, so women are put in this and that's why they come to this conclusion that men just suck. No, men don't suck. Men don't suck. They have their proper place and the things that they're inclined to do that are good for you. And you should accept that. Just accept that, right? And you have your things that you offer and that you bring to the table. But I think another thing the Manosphere gets really correct is that women never think about what they bring to the table. 
they don't think about what they bring to the relationship. Right. They think that having a vagina is, is all you need. That's all I need. I have a vagina. What? I have boobs, right? And it's like, no, um, you need to think about, again, the second half of your life. What about when you're me and you're 42, okay? I, I'm not downing myself or anything, but it's like, I'm 42, okay? It's only downhill from here. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm going to get wrinkles. Uh, Gravity is going to take hold. I'm never going to be 22 again. Mm -hmm. So what am I going to do with the second half of my life? Have an OnlyFans? Be hot? Get more plastic <laughs> surgery? It's, you know, so I, I did all the hard work on the front end. And now in the second half of my life, God willing, I'll have a whole bunch of grandkids. I'll have a church community that is a real family. I'll have this wonderful relationship with my husband because we've been through shit that we've been through stuff that nothing's going to break us now. Mm -hmm. Like if we got through all the things we got through, uh, there's nothing that's going to break us up now. And we're best friends and it's awesome. So don't listen to feminists. Don't be an e-thought. Don't have an <laughs> OnlyFans. Don't ride the, the cock carousel until you're 35 and then you're crying because no one wants to marry you. Um, get my book, read my book, and don't be a feminist. Nice. I, I well, I really <laughs> couldn't think of a better way to end it than that. This has been uh I, I I probably say this more than I should, but this has been just such an awesome experience to talk to awesome people like yourself. But this has been a uh, truly awesome show, and I'm glad you could come on to uh drop some knowledge and uh entertain the anti-feminist thoughts that I don't get to quite share as much as I really like to do over the past couple of months. I, I've definitely railed against it and it seems like people like it, but um, yeah, no, this was really, really cool. And I'd love to do another one sometime. So yeah. yeah um, one sure. more time. Um, if you got any plugs, drop them. And uh, if not, we'll uh, close her out. Yeah, sure. Uh, go sub to my brand new baby YouTube channel. It's just Rachel Wilson. If you go to my Twitter, I have a link tree there. Um, it's at Rach, the number four, patriarchy, Rach for patriarchy. Um, and then I've got a sub stack you can subscribe to where I post all of my fancy pants, academically inspired articles um, and writings that I do. Um, you can catch me on Jay Dyer's channel. I just did a big show with him that everybody seems to really like. Mm -hmm. And I debate on the crucible and on modern day debate. So if you want to watch me smash some feminists and make all their dreams crumble before their eyes you can go there but uh, yeah great talking to you and i would love to come back sometime and hopefully we'll all keep in touch absolutely yeah well i'm gonna have to catch up on some of those feminist debates because it's been quite a while since i've seen uh feminist tears and uh, I, I must say i i gotta imagine they're still just as tasty as they were back in 2015 and 16 yeah yeah <laughs> it's pretty satisfying and it's I do it with love. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, I, it's been really inspiring to have a ton of women who have read my book or watched my content email me or even write me letters in the mail because mm -hmm. um, I put like my mailing address out there sometimes for people to send me letters. And there's been so many women who have reached out to me and said, you know, I'm, I'm in dental school or I'm... Um, I'm in my last year of medical school or I'm about to go to college and all I really want to do is get married and have kids. That's what I want to do, what you're doing. I want to stay home. I want to homeschool. I want to be with my children, but I don't feel like I can tell anybody that my parents won't understand. They'll be disappointed. You know, I've, I've put all these years into having a career track in my life and I've put all this money in and I have college debt maybe already or things like that. And they don't know who to talk to about it. So 
I don't think this is truly what women want. We've just browbeat them and conditioned them and propagandized them to think that to be successful, this is what they must do. So I think there's a lot of hope and I'm all I'm trying to do is make it cool again to be a mom and a wife. Being a mom and a wife is cool. It's fun. It's a great life. It's really fulfilling. It's really enriching. There's a lot of self-sacrifice involved, but it's totally worth it. And I think I think there's a lot of hope. If we can get men to just be men again and tell women it's okay to be women, I think we can make a lot of progress. It's not about going back to 1950. It's about making the future something that's better for families and better for people and better for society. So, yeah. No, I'm really glad you laid it out that way because um, as the Manosphere guys say, there will be no going back. There's only going to be going forward. Yeah. And I think that we need to shape the future in a way that may resemble that, but with all the technologies and advances that we have today and just kind of shape the world a little bit better for those who come after us as unfortunately it doesn't seem like those who came before us quite left us the same fortunes that they had. But, um, you know, I I know if my mom was wearing a wasp shirt, I'd be pretty stoked. So I think you're doing a good job. (laughs) It's funny because my older kids, when they were like teenagers, they're 20 and 22 now. So when they were teenagers, they were like, I don't get it, whatever. You know, they thought it was totally weird. And they're like, (laughs) my weird mom talked about this feminist stuff. I don't know. It's fine. And now they're like, okay, we get it. Mm -hmm. We get it. And like, now that we look back, we're pretty happy. You know, like my 19 year old says me not putting her in public school because she was in public school for a few years. She wanted to try it. Mm -hmm. It went really badly, not because she was behind, not because she was socially awkward. It wasn't that. She was, like, fine with all that stuff. But public schools now are, like, prisons. It's, like, prison rules. There's violence. There's bullying. There's, like, all kinds of that stuff going on, even in, like, little small towns like we live in. And somebody asked her recently, like, how do you feel now that you're an adult about your mom and her stuff and homeschooling? And she's like, it probably saved my life. She was like, I don't, if I would have been forced to stay in a public school, I don't know if I would have made it because it was so rough and it was so, you know, like she started to get like worrying about her body and her body image and like people teasing her about her looks and she's beautiful, but that's how people are, right? They're just mean. Um, So, and she's like, I got to, I was allowed to like grow up and be a kid and develop an identity and have a personality outside of that system. So now that I'm an adult out in the world, like I know who I am and I know what matters and I have a good grounding for my life. So it's really nice to hear that my older kids feel like it worked and that I did a good job for them because that's all I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I can't imagine a higher purpose than that. Um, yeah, Rachel, this was absolutely awesome. So like I said, we'll definitely have to do it again. And uh, yeah. we'll we'll keep in touch. I'm going to watch some of your debates tomorrow. And, um, you know, hopefully uh, we can both enjoy some feminist tears together sometime. <laughs> yes, that'd be great. We'll awesome. do. Awesome, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course.